Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast series. Today, I've got Isaac with me. Um, he's waving, but you can't really see that. So uh, I'm going to throw it over to Isaac, and he's going to talk about um, what I brought him on for. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm, I'm glad to be here. It's, uh, you know, in, in Pride Month, I think there's a, there's a lot of a, attention to um, to sexual minorities and to people that um, I guess are in positions that maybe aren't aren't like things that we don't consider all, all too much in 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 the events of pride or in in the lifestyles of, of different people. And, you know, in the in the last year of the pandemic, I think there's been more awareness of these things and different issues. Uh, so I definitely want to talk about that. Um, a little bit about myself. Um, I'm, I'm from Southern California, born and raised. Um, I moved up to San Francisco for, for law school. Um, go, I just graduated from USF. Um, it's been a great time living up here. And uh, a couple of years ago, maybe, probably around the, the time that I, I moved up to SF, uh, I came out. It, it was something that I knew was was there or that was present, um, but never really had a had a community to to really speak on that about with or like talk to with. And what surprised me, or maybe not really surprising at all, is that in, in San Francisco there's a, a large uh, queer community. There's a large uh, community of people that identify as LGBTQ. And that exists as well within the law school. Like the law school is predominantly queer, uh, even even with the professors. Like I would say that most, not, not every professor is queer, but there there are definitely um, queer professors. And a majority of the professors that I had at USF were female professors, and that was another interesting thing and another great thing about USF is that it felt. Like it didn't feel like your um, your Ivy League uh, cis white male kind of environment. There was opportunity to um, to not <laughs> engage with that. You know, I, I think the the law field is so predominantly cis white male um, that I didn't really feel like that was the um, environment within USF. The I think the the hierarchy of of law school and you know other not so great things about law school still exist with within you know even great or good institutions, um, and that's just kind of like the the downside of of these uh, academic fields. But it was definitely a great experience. Enjoyed my time there and enjoyed learning from these professors and especially the queer professors. Yeah, that sounds that sounds so awesome because, I mean, I had a there's just stuff running through my head right now, and I'm just like you said, the law field in general is cis white men, right? And that was my thought when you were like, oh, the student body is there's more queer people, predominantly queer people, and I was like, fucking yeah, rock on, dude. And then you were like, there are queer women as your instructors as your professors and I was like that kind of I guess was not shocking but a little surprising because not because it was San Francisco it kind of aligned with what my perceived notions of San Francisco are um, but also what my knowledge of higher education is and the field of um, law from what my knowledge of the field of law is is that that doesn't really align with what my preconceived notions were. And that's kind of what we're doing is we're kind of breaking the preconceived notions of what something can be. So yeah, that's kind of just my, my thoughts on what you were just explaining. Totally. And I, I think you articulated way better than I did. I think that's a very precise way of uh, explaining that. I, I will say that the diversity is still somewhat lacking, at least within the faculty. Like, it's still predominantly white, uh, still predominantly cis. And, you know, I think that's just, again, part of 
academia, and I hope that it changes in the future. Um, but the student body, at least, is represented by a variety of different backgrounds of uh, sexual identities, of gender identities. And that's something that I really grew to appreciate. And I think it, it's something that is allowed to flourish with, within the law school. There are definitely um, you know, different clubs and organizations, as well as just a, a camaraderie, a, a respect towards one another. When I, when I moved to SF, I was recently 25, yeah, I was 25. So it, it was something that was still, I was still pretty young. All the brain juices I just developed. And <laughs> I'm like, I think I know myself. I think I understand myself pretty well. But then I was met with other people from different backgrounds, different lifestyles. And there, was these, there were these different questions about, well, do I really know myself that well? Like I'm starting to really ask more questions about myself and my beliefs and even my political values because, you know, I, I grew up in Orange County, uh, which is a very conservative area in California. And I moved to a more liberal area of California. And I think there are varying degrees of how people identify with their politics in San Francisco. There's people that fall more in the center and there's people that fall further on the left of the political sphere. Um, and even within these different conversations, it allowed me to like understand like my own political ideals because when you say that you're uh, a liberal in Orange County, like it doesn't really mean much. When you say that in San Francisco, it's like, it could mean anything. Mm -hmm. It could mean a whole variety of things. It could mean, it could mean a liberal in terms of neoliberal capitalism, or it yeah. could mean a liberal in terms of, um, it could mean liberal like Democrat. Exactly. Yeah. I, I think nowadays, and especially within like San Francisco where they, there's a under, deeper understanding of these different political ideologies, the term liberal here is probably more of a not so great term. Whereas maybe mm -hmm. in Orange County, it's like, you're, you're a liberal, you're part of this entire left sphere of political mm -hmm. ideology. So you got to San Francisco, um, you graduated from UCSF, you've got your law degree. What are you doing with your law degree? Yeah, so I, in, in my internship so far, I've been working in criminal defense. Uh, my first year, I worked at a legal aid in, in Los Angeles uh, doing um, expungement work, which is essentially like people, it's post-conviction work, people that have, uh, that have a criminal record, you know, at a, at a certain point in time, they can file to get those records cleared or expunged. Um, the, the term for that, the legal term for that is a, is a dismissal. So it's, um, it, it basically like wipes their record clean if they were to go apply for a job. There are certain jobs where like it would still show up, but for your basic background search, uh, it wouldn't come up on, on that. Uh, and it was a way to help people um, that were in a position where like they might not get a job or would have difficulty finding a job with this stuff on their background. And that's when I first noticed or saw this cyclical cycle of, of the way that people are kind of like, people that are indigent, that are kind of already placed in a situation where there isn't much opportunity for them to really succeed are going to be placed in, in, in more often than not in situations where, where uh, they could end up in some legal trouble in some sort of trouble with, with the law. And, you know, their resources are so limited. Now they are brandish with this criminal record, difficult to get a job. Now they are um, houseless or near houseless. They, they can't afford a place to live. They can't um, afford really much at all. Um, they are, they might be disconnected from their family, uh, issues like that. Um, I've seen a variety of different situations uh, up to like, uh, I had a client not too long ago and I'm, I'm gonna you know keep 
and names and stuff like that out. Of course, and, yeah, and, stay anonymous. That's. I had a client not too long ago was telling me about like his living situation where um, he was like sleeping in a car and he shared that car with a friend. Like I, I forget who owned the car, but that, that that was his living situation. Yeah, that's kind of the what did I say? One of the structural issues with our country is people that are poor, people that are marginalized. They have the shortest end of the stick. And it just keeps beating them. And so whoever your clients might be that need these expungements, um, they can't get homes. They can't get jobs. You see a person on the street, and uh, if they're in a state like mine, North Carolina, and they have uh, just a pot charge, a marijuana charge, right? That's illegal here right now. And so that's going to be a charge that's going to be on their record and an employer is going to see that or a housing unit's going to see that and they might not get the housing or the employment. And it's like you said, it's cyclical and someone's gonna, maybe they're on this, maybe they're on the street corner and they're saying, I need help um, looking for work or looking for food. And then that stigma is like, why don't you just get a job? I can't get a job because X, Y, and Z. And then you just see them again. And yeah, so that's certainly, that is certainly an important role that you're playing right now. Thank you. And um, I'm actually going to start working at the uh, public defender's office in Los Angeles uh, as soon as I wrap up things with the, with the bar exam. Uh, that's my future. That's my, my end goal. I've done two semesters, so about a year's work with, with the public defender's office. Mm -hmm. um, and that has been a rewarding experience. It was almost like, like the office itself is an environment where I feel like there's just this ability to, like there's so many people that, that are in the office that are prison abolitionists, that are very radical, that want this radical change, uh, that it's, it's inspiring. And mm -hmm. it's something that, you know, I, I feel inspired by. I, I see it and I'm like, yeah, I, I want to uh, be a part of this. And an, another thing as well, like when, like talking about these clients, like they're, you know, I, I mentioned like, I'm, I'm not gonna include any names and that's because like, well, well one client confidentiality, but two, like I, I know their names. I know these people. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that's so I think special with uh, criminal defense work and with the public defender's office maybe as opposed to like the DA side of things, like you meet the clients, you talk to them. In these conversations, you build this like relationship with them. You build this familiarity with them where they're not just a piece of paper. They're not just a document. Mm -hmm. They're not just like a charge that you see on file. You get to talk to them and, and ask them like their side of the story, everything that happened with them, a, a, a background of, of their life and how they got to where they're at now. Um, and in that, it, it's, it's very humanizing because I think, yeah. you know, so many people are, are easily and readily able to say like, well, this person did this thing and this is bad. So we, you know, we got to do what the law mm -hmm. says we got to do. We got to, you know, put a fine on them or put them in prison and that's their punishment. And I think it, it becomes more difficult to say those things when you meet the people that have been charged, that have been indicted, that are mm -hmm. about to be sent to prison. Yeah. And I think if we, if we kind of break down in a societal level, why that is, right? If you're hungry and you need money and you steal a radio to sell, you get caught, why are you committing the crime in the first place. It's not because you're a bad person. It's you're trying to survive, right? So in an instance like that, if our resources, not only for homeless individuals, were more um, in, intact, if there was a better infrastructure for that, or if we had better health care, like universal health care that wasn't putting people bankrupt for their medical bills, we wouldn't have... A, and I know this is a wild concept, we would have the upstream things taken care of 
and those downstream things like the petty theft, um, maybe even drug use because people are trying to escape from things would be taken care of. Yeah. What is your opinion on that? I guess as the person in the, in the legal field. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I think if there is some amount of, of, I don't know if I want to use the word leniency, but an amount of understanding to these people and their needs, then there's less of a, of a desire to punish them. I don't think the, the way that the criminal justice system works now, or at least the carceral state, the way that that works now isn't working because the recidivism rate is so high. I almost said so damn high, like, like the meme. Um, mm-hmm. It's so high that it, it's- I mean, like, we love memes here, so you- So damn high. Yeah, there you go. It's so, and it, it's a, it just goes to show that, you know, what the carceral state with, with what police are targeting and, and policing are often indigenous communities, communities of color, um, and these are communities where people do not have the resources uh, to get the sort of assistance that they that they do need. It's something that that is um, it's really disheartening. Like to to hear these stories. Sometimes it's like I I just want to like hug you. I want to I want to give you everything that you need. You know, I, there have been situations where. I hear a client's story. I'm just like, that's bullshit. Like that entire charge, what you've been, uh, these charges that are against you are, are just absolute bullshit. Like I, I can see that this is discriminatory, that this is like targeting you. There's hardly a basis here for like why they did what they did. And, you know, you're absolutely right. Like if we spent less time and effort on policing, on putting people into prison, on these punishments, and more time into what the communities actually need in assistance with with housing, in assistance with drug use, in assistance with food, shelter, uh, anything else, education. These, these things that are you know, it may be in other communities that are just so abundant and evidently there aren't always going to be abundant in, in other communities and in indigent communities. And it is noticeable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess that's why we decided to have this particular episode today was because we we're going to have you talk about um, the disparities be- uh, for non-bi- non-binary individuals in the prison system. So you want to give us a little background about that? Yeah. So I, I recently wrote this paper on how the, the legal field has, st- has still yet to understand or grapple with um, non-binary issues or uh, understanding what, what a non-binary identity is. And it's kind of twofold. I, the, the way the paper is structured, it, it identifies like binary as this like two- two viewed way or like um, a, a way of, of looking at two things or looking at, at, a, at a, as, as a whole as two separate entities. Um, and I wrote it as pertaining to sexuality mm-hmm. and to gender. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think so commonly we, we think of sexuality as something that is either or. You're either mm-hmm. heterosexual or you're homosexual. And I, there's, more lately, like in, in um, as, as of late, I think there's a better understanding of sexuality as being something that's fluid. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the other side, uh, gender is, is often viewed as a binary. You know, one side you have female, the other side male, and then a person that identifies as non-binary, gender non-conforming, gender fluid, it isn't part of the binary or, you know, somebody's gender fluid might be um, somebody that experiences different changes of, of how they, of, of their gender identity, like how they present themselves, how they express themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, well, if you don't mind um, pausing for a second, yes. I think when presenting this information to someone that doesn't 
um, know as much information about it. They're going to say, well, isn't gender just the same thing as sex? Because that's, you know, that's what a lot of people were taught growing up is that gender is an interchangeable word with, with biological sex. Yeah, that is, uh, it's so often understood to be that. And I think even the legal system still hasn't understood that. Uh, gender, I feel like it's, it's something that I, it's repeated so often. Gender is a social construct. It's something that is, that has been made to identify what a, a gender is. Like we, we, we understand gender because we've created that identity of a gender. Mm -hmm. uh, and then sex is the actual biological identity that each of us has. But even that, um, as of late again, like it, even that's been understood to be something that's, that's not so static as X chromosome, Y chromosome. Uh, there's a variety of different um, sexes as well, like intersex people. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a great way of giving the listeners a little bit of um, kind of differentiation between what traditional definitions might be versus what many are now recognizing, many in our generation, I guess, um, are now recognizing as these newer kind of more progressive views on, on what sex, gender, sexuality are. So thanks for prefacing uh, what you're about to say with that. Yeah, and thank you. Thank you for, uh, you know, uh, bringing that up. I'm just pulling up this uh, document in front of me. Yeah, so I started nice. off with um, kind of defining binary um, as something that is compounded or consisting of, consisting of or marked by two things uh, and how that has been even, even the word binary is something that's been kind of expounded upon. Uh, psychologist Sandra Bem has described this concept of gender polarization as this organizing of social life around the male and female distinction. MS theorized that our social life places such a strong emphasis on gender that it permeates nearly every facet of our society. Uh, and that includes uh, not just modes of dress and social roles, but also ways of expressing emotion and ex experiencing sexual desire. Uh, so in essence, what Ben's describing is like how pervasive the gender binary is in our social life. Um, and she suggests within uh, this article that I read that it should be dismantled. And uh, here's this little paragraph I took from her work. In other words, it might be more effective in the long run if all of us sex, gender, desire, anomalies were henceforth to refuse to be managed, regulated, invisibilized, disciplined, and or in any way homogenized into the residual category of dirt that stands in such a stark opposition to the two and only two privileged and cherished categories of male masculine attracted to women and fe female feminine attracted to men and what we instead began madly and exuberantly to proliferate ourselves into as many categories of sex, gender, desire as we seem to need. In that paper, um, she goes on to explain how like, this was written back in 96. So I don't think she had any sort of um, ability to see into the future what exactly non-binary would look like, what different sexualities might like uh, pansexual or um, bisexual might, might look like or how more prevalent they might be. But her idea of dismantling uh, the gender polarization was to include more categories, to include more categories of gender, to include more categories of sexual identity so that there was no longer this stark two choice between uh, whether you identify as male or whether you identify as female. It's more of like literally the rainbow and breaking it up into many different things. Like have you seen an episode of Fairly Odd Parents um, where they're gray blobs. Oh, I'm the grayest and the blobbiest. And so that's what I heard. And what you were saying is that instead of dismantling the system and making it into everyone conforms, we're dismantling the system and making it so that you go do this and you go do this and, and, and I can be this and that and the other thing. And in a way, 
people can still identify in the way that the binary was was originally set up, but that's not what the norm has to be. And that's what I got from what you just read. Bam's suggestion of, of dismantling is more like widening, widening the scope of what we perceive gender and sexuality to be to a point where like heterosexuality is almost like it's it's now thought of some heterosexuality and uh, cisgender is now thought of as something within this larger framework of categories instead of like this is the neutral position this is now just one identity out of multitudes of different identities but wait what about the children how are we going to give birth to kids what if they turn gay <laughs> How are we going to know what bathroom to use? How are we going to know what prison to put them in? How what? are they going to know what what color they should associate with? How, how do we know what... Um... How are we going to market to them? Yeah. Right? <laughs> how are we going to know who to draft into the army? <laughs> what if they want to wear dresses and I don't know how to say... Give, give a clear answer to that. Like, what do I say? Oh, wait, it makes you uncomfortable? Fucking good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's a great, I think it's a great thing uh, what you've just described. And of course I was being facetious, but that's what people do. Like in reality, they're like, what about bathrooms? And what about like, just let people live, man. Yeah. Let people live. Obviously, I just said man, but like that's even coded into our language. Definitely. I've been been trying to use y'all more often. That's something that I've like been working on, y'all. Or when I write something, like if, I, if I'm copying down text or paraphrasing something and the text that I'm copying from uses uh, a gendered he or she, I try to write they in, instead, just so like I start to use it more and more um, in my language, like gender neutral. Yeah, that's what I would. That's what I do as well. I hate the term y'all because, again, I'm from Massachusetts and I've been living in the South for nearly five years now. But I, I just don't like it. <laughs> like it also reminds me of some people that I had that I worked for in residence life at my undergraduate and just just don't like it I don't really use it that much what about yens that just sounds ridiculous to me <laughs> like I'll say I'll say hello everyone hello all hello team y'all no <laughs> I can be inclusive without sounding like an ass like yeah. a well I said ass but <laughs> like a bumpkin I should, I wanted to say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so <laughs> this is, we're just hanging out, right? Yeah. Um, I have to only have to edit this down. <laughs> um, I also want to throw in, so in, in this paper that I have, I, I did touch on, I broke apart the binary between gender binary and the sexuality binary. I think, you know, so far we, we've covered what a, a gender binary is or what it looks like, uh, but the, the idea of like sexuality also being a social construct. I like when, when I was researching this stuff, I was like, I never thought about like sexual, like where the term sexuality came from or where the term uh, heterosexual and homosexual came from. Well, in 1889, uh, a Austro-German psychiatrist, Richard von Kraft Ebbing, most German name that I can think of, use the terms heterosexual and homosexual within his work, the Psychopathia Sexualis, which described numerous sexual behaviors in sexual practices. Mm -hmm. um, and then this work was later ex expanded upon and it, it basically ex explained like these different um, variations of, of different sexual behaviors like they they were looked at as um as like almost an, an anomaly with mm -hmm. like heterosexual being like this is what everybody is um 
And then there are different um, variations of that. There, you have people that are um, homosexual. You have people that I don't know if it was already defined at that time, but you have people that are that are bisexual. Uh, so this is something that has been, you know, expanded upon. Has been that was created back in in 1889. Um, like the idea of what sexuality we are is something that it has been created in order to understand different sexual identities. Um, and I think it's important to understand that little piece of information to understand how sexuality can, can be something fluid and not something so static. Because if we're able to say, if, if at any given day we're able to say like, you know, I think that my sexuality is X, then cool. Like you are able to do that. You have that freedom to do that. Your sexuality doesn't need to be something that is um, perceived solely as like what's written on a piece of paper. Like if, if you were to take down um, the different aspects of, of yourself, of your, of your sexuality and write it down in a piece of paper, I think that that just it, it doesn't fully capture entirely what the person is and what they're experiencing. And I think the experiences of, of different uh, members of the LGBTQ community um, can definitely like, you know, explain on that further, like dif different people have, have had different experiences in, in coming out in their own sexuality, how they, how, how they feel as if, they're perceived and how they present themselves to the rest of the world. And I think that goes to, to show like, again, the rainbow, it, it, there, mm -hmm. there isn't just a, a clear cut um, picture of, of what a homosexual person is or mm -hmm. what they look like, which I think when, whenever we enter pride month and we see all these um, corporations and giant entities like, trying to appeal to um you mean like raytheon <laughs> did raytheon do something recently uh they 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 all changed like their twitter avatars and stuff and raytheon changed their logo to a rainbow logo and it's right. like your all of your missiles sponsored by the gays trademark <laughs> so sorry to interrupt you but i think that's i also you know, I think it's funny that these capitalist corporations are taking advantage of or they see an opportunity in consumerism, like identity, uh, like consumerizing, commercializing, commodifying is the better word of identity. Um, and people eat it up, too. Like if you go to Target, there's literally a pride section that's been out for like two weeks. And there's a shirt that says ally there. And I looked at it and I'm like, I mean, I'm an ally. Why not? But then it's like, do I really want to support the commodification of like queer people? I am right now, technically, because I'm taking up your time and I'm <laughs> commodifying your knowledge without con compensating you. But like, that's a, that's like a huge kind of philosophical dilemma not for everyone, obviously, but, but for me, right. Um, and for, for many people that, you know, are not, are anti-capitalists, um, and sorry to interject this point in there, but I, I didn't know if you were going that way anyway. Um, but what do you feel about that? It's, um, I, I think we're, where our society is heading in, in this, um, realm of identity politics, it's very easy to get swayed and in, into. Uh, oh wait! First, you have to define identity politics because <laughs> some people do not like that term. Um, if you use the term identity politics, some people might not enjoy that. Um, they might call you a class reductionist. Um, got it. Got it. So. Uh, <laughs> so identity politics is is um, and I'm just going to pull up the. I'm gonna pull up the Merriam-Webster dictionary. Uh, politics when groups of people having 
having particular racial, religious, ethnic, social, or cultural identity tend to promote their own specific interests or concerns without regard to interest or concerns of any larger political group. I think that's a pretty good definition. So the, the idea of identity politics is, is that we, we look to a very singular identity of a person uh, or of an entity. If, if they align with, uh, say, our own identity, if, if I see somebody out in the world that looks like me, that identifies in the same way that I do or appreciates my identity, then I am going to be more willing to support them and to feel comfortable with that. The issue, and I, I think, you know, there, there's a, a good and bad to it. The good is that we are able to freely express ourselves and, you know, understand the, this political value of identity, understand like, you know, everybody is an individual entity able to be whatever they want. And in that, we can also like cherish the, um, the similar similarities that we have with each other as to like race, national origin, uh, sexuality. Uh, mm -hmm. And then the other side of that is, is like the bad, like, like Raytheon, where you have these giant um, companies, these, these giant uh, uh, capitalist companies like promoting to that, that, that really want to take advantage of political identity of um yeah of, of this identity politics by kind of uh swaying your your will or swaying your your um your your decision to their favor by uh presenting you with something that that is easily identifiable to something that you associate with if you see um like you know if if the U.S. Navy one day was like, you know, come join the Navy. Uh, look at all the uh, queer members that we have within the Navy. They like, did that. They did that. The Air Force or the Air Force did it. They're like, look at our first all gay flight team. And people were like commenting on their posts and, and they were like, <laughs> the first quote unquote. <laughs> and people were also doing that. Um, you know, that meme where it's like, Democrats versus Republicans uh, bombing the Middle East, and it, they're putting that to it. And I think that speaks to kind of the identity that you're talking about, where it's like Republicans will lie, it will won't lie to you. They'll just tell you that they're going to do it. They might be racist, but they're still going to lie to you, or they're they're not going to lie to you. Excuse me. Um, whereas Democrats will try and play to your identity. Um, when I talk about Democrats, I'm talking about neoliberal Democrats, not leftists um, or anti-capitalists. Um, and they'll say missiles like sponsored by Raytheon in Rainbow. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, yeah, the Air Force did that. Our first all gay flight crew come join the Air Force because we like the gays, TM. Yep. And this might be a good segue in, into the into the asylum stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but Kamala Harris is a really good example of identity politics. When we look at her career as, um, as the attorney general for the state of California and uh, as district attorney, she was somebody that, you know, for like, we're able to, to view Kamala as a, as a woman of color, as somebody that has uh, succeeded into the position that, that, that they're currently in. I don't believe that she didn't get a single delegate. Also, I, as I believe you're going to allude to, she also did a terrible job in her position in California. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, she did a terrible job in California. The the amount of people that were incarcerated under her her time as attorney general and district attorney were just you know vastly disproportionate. So many people of color. So many brown and black folk just placed in, into prisons. Um, her during her time as as attorney general, she um, did not uh, care about gender identity. She uh, didn't. There were there were people that were misplaced into um, 
trying to think of the right term for that. They were, they were, they were not placed into the prison facility that they're, yeah, trying to think of the right word for that. Like their preferred identity? Yes. Yeah. Which is something that's just like on, on multiple different levels, like that is something that is just so pervasive. Like on, on one hand, like you have a trans person that is being placed in the prison and and on top of that, you have their 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 gender identity is not being recognized whatsoever, and they're being placed in a facility that does not uh, conform with their gender identity. That is, that's messed up. Really, that's traumatizing to the person. I can't I can't even fathom how traumatizing that is to the person, especially when you know you are probably brought up in an environment where you know that your body is not what it's supposed to be. And, you know, maybe you finally feel like you've, you've figured yourself out and then something happens and it might, it might be quote unquote your fault, or it might be wrong place, wrong time. And you're going to jail for maybe even two weeks or like nothing, you know, uh, no long time. And then this massive kind of like something that deaffirms your identity that you've worked hard to affirm with yourself uh, just kind of hits you over the head. Yeah. It's um, as I said before, like it's a, it's a very cyclical and dehumanizing cycle. The, the way the carceral state works, like it, it takes, it takes away your identity. It takes away Mm -hmm. any sort of value that you have. I guess my question would be like, how do they determine it? Like, do they just go by driver's license or birth certificate? Or like if someone is trans, but they haven't um, changed a driver's license, um, do they, are they just like, okay, you're not trans. You're going to go with your birth. In some instances, in some instances, I, I think that's how it's done. Um, mm-hmm. There, so there's this case uh, uh, called Zim versus Pompeo, uh, and this was back in 2014. I started back in 2014, and mm-hmm. Dina Zim, an intersex person and the military veteran, applied for a a U.S. passport, but instead of writing uh, female or male underneath the sex category, mm-hmm. they wrote intersex because that's how they identified. Like they, they weren't, you know, strictly one or the other. And there were times within Dana Zim's life where they, uh, I guess they, they more heavily associated with one or the other. So they had different documents that showed like, on this document, it says that I am female. On this document, it says that I'm male. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when applying for this passport, they were like, neither, like just none. Um, and uh, Zim's application was denied uh, because like the, the internal civil aviation organization was like, well, we can't just give you this passport that says like, you're, you're not of any gender like that, that we don't have any policy for that. Like you have mm-hmm. to choose one. So we're just going to, deny this application. Um, and she, Dana Zim ended up suing, um, alleging that, that the denial of the passport application and the department's binary only gender policy violated the Administrative Procedures Act, uh, as well as like due process and equal mm-hmm. rights. Um, and basically like the, the argument that that the um, State Department had was that like our our policy for this is because we want to have like accuracy and we we want to be able to determine like any sort of um, like if somebody's gonna gonna apply for a passport we want to be able to determine like who that person is mm-hmm. like we want to make sure that they're exactly who they say they are it's easy to like verify this person and determine like eligibility. I, it, honestly, like a, a kind of like a bunch of bullshit uh, reasons. Yeah, why. bureaucratic stuff. Yeah. What are you gonna do? Be like, oh, I, I'm a woman. 
Okay. Pull down your pants. Yeah. Which is like incredibly inappropriate. Okay, I can provide you documentation that I have a, a driver's license and a birth certificate that says I'm a, I'm female, or I can give you a driver's license that says I'm male, and then you're gonna ask me questions that's like, well, this driver's license says you're male. And then the person would need to explain that they're transgender, they're going through uh, hormone replacement therapy and you know all that kind of stuff. And what you're saying is, you know, your overall point about these documents being like, you don't need that information. Like you would need a social security number, like, or an address or something like that to make sure that someone is who they say they are or something like that. If they've got their driver's license with a driver's license number or any kind of I, uh, federal ID or something like that, because not everyone has a driver's license or something, a bill or something, piece of mail from your house, like the same kind of thing. You don't always need to know someone's sex, gender, sexuality, anything like that. You can expand your options, right? Update your system. People don't like change. And why would you have a multi-year court case over just adding one option to a checklist? Yeah. Exactly. Because you're going to have more people that are going to be doing this. And it's not because more people are becoming trans or intersex or non-binary. It's because more people are feeling confident to say that they are. Yeah, absolutely. And at, at least like on, on ZimZen, like there, there was a, a pretty good resolution to, to this. Um, the, the lower court did grant Zim injunctive relief and they said, well, the department can't uh, rely on this gender only, this binary only gender marker policy. And then on appeal, the United States Court of Appeals for the 10th Circuit uh, basically affirmed and they said that the State Department acted with a arbitrary and capricious manner in designing this policy. I don't know what that means. I'm not a legal person. I don't know what that means. Arbitrary, I know, is like random or like, but what does capricious mean? Uh, it basically means uh, like it's it's not, there's really no reason for them to do that. Like there's no, there's no like justifiable reason for them to like really rely on this policy. And, they weren't thorough. Yeah. Uh, see, even and, with my, even with my, sorry to interrupt you, even with my own research, um, I'm doing a study right now and it's a survey. And I have gender options instead of the, the original survey had, not the original, one of the surveys that informs my research had sex, but what it, and that was from 2003, what it meant was uh, masculine and feminine norms, which is not sex at all. Um, and so with gender, with my survey, I have um, male, female, gender non-binary, or non-conforming, and then I have transgender, male to female, transgender, female to male, or prefer not to answer. And I think that covers a lot of the basis of, or ba basis of what we see now. Um, doesn't mean in the future we, we don't, you know, see more kinds of categories as you were saying previously. Um, but I think taking that care with individuals, um, populations even, and finding their needs, right? I've already had non-binary individuals and um, trans individuals reply to my survey. So just by putting that in, they may have finished the survey because they felt included. I mean, I think it's important at the policy level to do this kind of stuff because you're making everyone feel human because we are human. Definitely. Um, and there was, a, there was a Supreme Court case last year called Bostock versus Clayton County. And it's, it's somewhat like, I think the, the, the end result is a fairly good result. And 
I'll, I'll, I'll preface this by this. Like when I, when I entered into law school, I had this like high regard for the the courts, especially the Supreme Court. I was like, yeah, they they sh- they must know everything that's going on. Like they're they're the like I'm sure that their decisions are sound. And now I'm here at my third year, uh, or at the end of of my uh, career, thinking the complete opposite. I'm like, no, there's so many times where they get stuff wrong. So many times mm-hmm. they fuck up. Like they are not these these like great overseers um it's because a lot of them are like old yeah and they're out of touch with society and they're bought and paid for and put into these places of power yeah they come from from ivy league schools they come they already came from like a, a very privileged background that their entire life is just that it's like one fell swoop of of this um privilege that, that they've like amassed over their lifetime. So Bostock was decided just one month after after Zim. So Zim versus Palpeo was, was, was decided in, in 2020. This was uh, in the 10th circuit. And then Bostock was in the Supreme Court. Uh, the, uh, the plaintiffs were fired for having informed their employees that they were gay or transgender. Um, and I think, I know it was at least one, possibly two, that were transgender uh and this this is underneath the underneath employment law so they're they're filing their lawsuit under title 7 of the civil rights act 1964 alleging alleged and alleged that they've been unlawfully discriminated against on the basis of sex so it's underneath this like what they're bringing their claim forward is like underneath this scope of of employment but it's underneath uh, title seven. So they're like, we're being discriminated on the basis of sex. We, we've been uh, fired for having informed our employers um, that we are gay or transgender. But notice that title seven doesn't say anything about gender. It says sex. That's what, yeah. that's what my first thought was. And I was like, well, if these are men, then they're not going to get anything out of it because they're in the majority, even though, you know, they're in the power dynamic group. And so even if there are men that have sex with men or a trans man or a trans woman that is transitioning to a woman from a man, you're a man in the eyes of the corporation because we don't want to lose this lawsuit because it's sex and sex is penis and vagina. Mm-hmm. So that was my first thought when you said that. And I was like, ooh, this is not going to end well. Yeah, it, it ends pretty well. And that is, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll go further into that. So Title VII states that it's unlawful for an employer to fail or refuse to hire or to discharge any individual or otherwise discriminate against any individual because of such individuals' race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. And the question that's presented to the Supreme Court is whether the term sex included sexual orientation and transgender status. Uh, and this is where it gets a little interesting. Gorsuch wrote for the majority. It was Gorsuch that gave the opinion. Um, and Gorsuch admitted that homosexuality and transgender status are distinct concepts from sex but went on further to say that discrimination based uh, because of sexuality and gender or discrimination on, 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 the, on gender and, and sexuality are, are basically inseparable from sex. I mean, no, because right. if you're saying they're their own distinct things, then they are inseparable. So you need to amend that title need to amend title seven to say gender and sexuality you shouldn't be able to fire someone because they're gay or queer i should say to encompass different um and you shouldn't be able to fire someone because they're trans that's not right that's not okay yeah but any kind of identity you should not be able to fire someone because of that's not okay and that's now creating a precedent that you kind of can still do that 
it's vague enough where someone can still do that. I hope, I hope whatever, I hope whatever comes of that, like someone kind of tries to appeal it so that it it makes it a different, I want to change the world, but I don't know anything about law, so I can't do it. Yeah. And I agree with you. I agree with you. I don't, I don't think the holding is, is sound. Uh, And Gorsuch like goes on further to say like, it's, it's, it's impossible to discriminate against a person for being homosexual transgender without discriminating against the individual based on sex. Paraphrased differently, if changing the employee's sex would have yielded a different choice by the employer, a statutory violation has occurred. So Gorsuch essentially like, he's basically like, like attaching gender to sex. And as we've already said before, like they are two distinct different identities or, or different concepts. And the holding works out for the plaintiffs because they get the result they wanted. They were able, they, they won because underneath Title VII, sex can include gender and sexuality. But now we're equating gender with sex. And it reaffirms the binary because we're only viewing, uh, we're still thinking of, of gender as something that is attached to sex, something that, that, is, that is still very much like either or. There's nothing in here that says anything about like non-binary people or gender non-conforming folk. Like it, there's nothing in here that, it, that is like, well, in these situations, um, like somebody that is suing, like I, I was thinking about this a lot. I was thinking about if somebody were to bring a claim forward as a non-binary individual and say, I, I'm being discriminated against because of my identity, how would that look like? Because mm-hmm. you're not essentially, you're, you're, you're not saying that like, I'm being discriminated against because of my gender. It would almost be like an, like an absence of, mm-hmm. um, like, how would you bring that claim forward? How would you like write that down? And I can think, I think, sorry for interrupting you. I can think of an example where it's like someone, someone that is masculine presenting says they are non-binary. They, their coworkers know them as non-binary. They kind of come out and say that they are non-binary. They want to use they, them pronouns. And a manager says, no, you're, and they like kind of like go by a different nickname or something like that. Like, let's just say that their name is like, their name is uh, Isaac. I'm going to use your name, but they want to go by some other nickname, right? So everyone calls them their nickname. It's all good. But the manager's like, that's not your name. I'm not going to call you that because that's not, that's not your name, right? Your name is Isaac. And they're like, well, I prefer to be called this name because that's a nickname for me that I like. Um, and only my family calls me that. Like, and it might be on my birth certificate, but only my mom can call me that because she gave birth to me. So like something like that. And then the manager will be like, Hey, uh, someone says to the manager, Hey, do you know where Isaac is? And the manager goes, Oh yeah, he's over there. Right. Continually using incorrect pronouns. And so is that discrimination based off of sex? Well, if someone's gender non-binary or gender non-conforming, what, like you said, the absence of sex or just because they present as masculine or feminine or androgynous, you know, it's like, what does that claim look like? And, you know, like corporate's going to fight like hell to not pay out a huge fine. So it's like, they're going to find every loophole possible. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, Honestly, like your that scenario, I think is like how I would see a claim come forward. Um, mm-hmm. I think that, that that is like would be like the like the best way of bringing a claim forward. Yeah, yeah. So um, you know, Bostock and Zam touch on issues of of the gender binary, but there is also issues with the sexuality binary or people that, you know, are 
sexual minorities that don't, um, you know, whose sexuality is a little bit more fluid than, than just like I, um, you know, I identify as, you know, X or Y, you know, I think when, when there's like sexual fluidity, there's also issues within the, the legal world on like how to deal with that. And the best example of that is asylum cases. Um, so in 1990, the Board of Immigration Appeals recognized the need to protect uh, homosexuals as a particular social group. So that was, you know, make sure that people that sought asylum on, on, their, uh, on their sexuality had this ability to like you know, do so. Um, and to seek asylum is, is pretty much like seek refuge within the US. Um, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, the UNHCR, defines a refugee as any person who's outside any country of such person's nationality and who is unable or willing to return to and is unable or unwilling to avail himself or herself of the protection of that country because of persecution or well-founded fear of persecution on account of race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion. So as I said, like homosexuality falls within that particular social group. They, they've, it's been identified as like uh, an area that you're able to seek refuge. Like you can uh, seek asylum that way. Um, and particular social group is defined as like a group of persons who share a common characteristic that is often innate or otherwise fundamental. You know, you can't change your sexuality or sorry. The, the idea is like with, within, within uh, seeking asylum is like, you can't change your sexuality. And that's where the issue lies um, that it's so difficult for people that are sexually, sexually who identify as people that are fluid in, in their sexuality. Um, are unable to really seek asylum because their their status is something that isn't concrete. It's not something that is easily identifiable. Um, sexuality, unlike race and gender, is not a visible trait. It exists out of plain view. So there's this added burden of proving that they're in fact a part of the asserted social group of being a homosexual individual, but when there is uh, sexual fluidity, if you're bisexual, if you're pansexual, um, then it becomes difficult to, to show that, um, to, to prove that, to prove that you are a part of that social group. There have been instances where uh, there, there are like claimants that, are, that have been married in the past, but have you know, have, have been married, have a family, but prior history or like other history shows that like they had sexual partners of the same gender. Um, and then there's like issues with that in seeking asylum because like the idea of like um, seeking asylum is like you're, you're gonna be persecuted in the country that you're, that you're currently in. And for people that are again, like bisexual or pansexual, it's the, the common reason why their applications are rejected is because that fear of persecution is not seen as there. Like they, in, in some ways, like- the, I understand what you're saying. It's like, just, just don't be, uh, just don't be gay. Yeah. Right? Just, exactly. just go with the opposite team and, uh, and you're not going to get persecuted. Just, you know, we're, we're, we don't we don't need to get you asylum because uh, you you're not going to be persecuted because uh, you're just kind of choosing to be with. You're not you're not homosexual, right? So you're not going to get persecuted because you have a wife and kids or something like that. And it's like, uh, maybe not because. I have had relations with men before. Uh, I have had relations with gender non-conforming people before. And if someone finds out, then that happens. Yeah. So it's a perfectly valid reason. Um, 
for seeking asylum because there are some places that being gay will get you killed or run in jail. Um, well, homosexual acts, I should say. Um, even if you have a wife and kids. So um, I think it's perfectly valid reason. And the policy is certainly outdated. Definitely. And that was, uh, so that was the 2009 case, Sempagala versus Holder in the Sixth Circuit. They denied the bisexual claimant because they said he could hide his sexuality and that he was currently married to a woman and had not engaged in same-sex relationships since leaving Uganda. Um, and then in a similar case, Fuller v. Lynch, the Seventh Circuit denied um, Fuller's petition and would want to send back to Jamaica. And he submitted evidence that he'd been persecuted for his sexuality, like all this different evidence that he had been attacked, stoned, robbed, uh, was shot in, in, in the back while he was with his boyfriend, like all this other, all this evidence, I don't know if, if it was just like testimonial and, and that's why there wasn't a lot of weight given to it, but he had a lot of evidence that he brought forward. Um, the Seventh Circuit declined to grant full relief because of discrepancies between a written statement and then his testimony. But I mean, like that's, I think it's very minimal. And he was unable to get any of his former partners to testify, which is like, if you're facing persecution in Uganda, well, I'm sorry, if you're facing persecution in, in Jamaica based on sexuality, why are you going to testify on, on, like, why are you going to bring, like somebody, like somebody that's unrelated to, to the claim, somebody that has, that has a possibility of being persecuted against in Jamaica, why are they going to come forward and like testify on, on this behalf? Like, why are they going to put themselves in risk of persecution? Especially if they're still in Jamaica. And, Exactly, exactly. And in Escaping Descent, Judge Posner wrote that the weakest part of the immigration judge's opinion is its conclusion that Fuller is not bisexual, a conclusion premised on the fact that he's had sexual relations with women, including a marriage. Apparently, the immigration judge does not know the meaning of bisexual. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. That's good. I mean, that's... That's perfect. I think that's a great way to, to end our, our, our recording today. Um, so Isaac, I certainly thank you for you know, being on with us and um, sharing um, your experiences with the, uh, with the legal system, with your um, internships and, and where you're going in the law. Uh, and I certainly wish you the best of luck um, and is there anything you want to say before you go? You want to plug anything, anything like that? Yeah. Um, you know, if you want to follow me on all social media, you can find me at plant daddy. I like plants. So if you want to chat with me about plants, like I'm around and available. Awesome. So I'm going to leave your social links in the uh, description. That's all right. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so everyone that's listening, Thank you, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. 